Hey, everyone. I'm here with Dr. Jennifer Nuzzo. She's a professor of epidemiology and the director of the Pandemic Center at Brown University School of Public Health. She's also a senior fellow uh, for, the, for Global Health at the Council on Foreign Relations. She co-leads the development of the Global Health Security Index, directs the Outbreak Observatory, and has a whole host of other qualifications that would take the entire interview to list out. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me on the kind introduction. I appreciate it. Uh, so first question, uh, a lot of my listeners sort of sort of vary in terms of their degree of worry about COVID, uh, whether they're focusing, whether they just don't care at all or focusing just on vaccinations or are just locked up tight, high to the pandemic uh, sort of style. Um, and a lot of that comes from the, the, the declaration of, of COVID as either an endemic or a pandemic. Uh, I know President Biden has said the pandemic was over that people were a little bit critical of that claim. Uh, what's your take? Is this an endemic or a pandemic? And what does that mean? Yeah, so it's actually a tough thing to answer in part because um, while we have kind of loose definition of what qualifies uh, pandemic and sort of endemic illness, um, we've never uh, established really clear criteria for when those criteria no longer met. And even deciding when the criteria are met is not without controversy either. Um, one thing I have to stress is that uh, sometimes we conflate different aspects of the pandemic. But when you talk about endemic and pandemic, um, really it means um, you know how many cases and what the distribution of the cases are in terms of space and time with respect to what you expect. So in the case of declaring, or we don't actually formally declare a pandemic, in the case of calling something pandemic, when you start to see more cases than expected pop up around the world in, in lots of different places, that's generally a signal that a pandemic is um, underway. Um, and then endemic really describes um, levels of disease that are um, expected, um, meaning they sort of are sustained without um, uh, travel importations and um, and they're happening at an occurrence that's not out of the ordinary in some way. Um, in the case of COVID, we don't know what expected is because this you know virus didn't exist before. So that's why you're hearing some debate um, over whether COVID has reached an endemic state. One thing is clear, the virus is not going away. It'll continue to circulate around the globe and cause infections um, you know, for the foreseeable future. So um, it's just a question of when will the levels of infections reach, you know, a, a point that's sort of, say, and, and we don't really have any metrics to guide that. I think it's an old pattern than we've seen before they're willing to call it that. Um, but, um, you know, before we even get there, the fact that COVID is continuing to cause, you know, here in the United States, hundreds of deaths per day, clearly indicates that it's a significant public health threat, regardless of what you call it. And so when we're talking about those cases, a couple of things that like people have been saying is that uh, as the virus evolves, it's going to continue to become less and less deadly. Um, so even if cases are increasing or staying at the same level, it's going to be less and less deadly. Is that something you agree with? And what exactly is that evolved thing that people keep talking about? Yeah, um, no, I don't really agree with that. I mean, I think that's a bit of a perhaps misinterpretation of, of evolution. Um, I, and it might also be conflating two things. Um, so one thing is that, you know, this winter we um, 
expected that there could be a, a real surge in, in um, COVID cases, just like we saw in previous winters. Um, the reality is it didn't turn out to be as bad as some people expected it could. And um, one you know, strong possibility for that is by now we have a lot of immunity in the population. Um, of course, people are vaccinated, but also a lot of people have gotten COVID already. So taken together, that means that um, there's just less overall vulnerability in the population than we've seen before. Um, that is not the same as the virus is evolving to get less deadly. Um, and um, although um, some of the variants may be less severe. There's actually still a little bit of a scientific debate about that, but some reason to think that some of the later variants might be. Um, it doesn't mean that future variants will be. Um, so there's no fundamental law that says the virus will inherently become less deadly. Um, so uh, not to, you know, disappoint anybody. I mean, I do think the level of population immunity we have, you know, gives us more protection than we had two years ago, but um, that's absolutely critical that we continue to monitor this virus and make sure there aren't any surprises. And, and I know you just talked about like variants and how, you know, we're going to continue to see them. I think that for a lot of people, like we heard about a couple of big variants and now like, when, in, when there's a new variant, it doesn't really make uh, as much as much of part as a, of a regular news cycle. Are we continuing to see more and more variants of COVID? Uh, is that something we're continuing to see? And, um, uh, what effects do you think is going to have, or are these just really variable in terms of the effects that they have? Yeah, so I, I think, yes. I mean, as long as this virus continues to circulate on the planet, there's the possibility that mutations will occur as, as it's replicating, and those mutations, um, you know, um, particularly if they confer some kind of advantage, um, can contribute to a new variant that then um, perhaps becomes um, a dominant one. Um, so yes, uh, variants are something that I think we should expect to see in the future, and it's why it's critical to maintain surveillance, um, not just for infections, but also to do sequencing to see if the virus is, is changing. Um, but um, you know whether subsequent variants will be more or less deadly, I mean, we really don't know. I mean, I, I, I do think there is increasing belief that the level of protection we have in our population against severe illness um, is, is quite good. And that could um, help us uh, um, for uh, in terms of our defenses against future variants. Um, but we also know that um, in particular, some patient groups and, you know, it's people at this point still people over the age of 65, even in some cases over 50, people with underlying health conditions, above all benefit from staying up to date with their vaccinations um, because of the potential for um, the, the virus to, to change and um, for their antibody response to, to wane over time. There's other parts of the immune system that may protect them, but we do see um, the data that they have additional protection um, when um, uh, they get up to date with their vaccines through boosting. And so on the topic of vaccines, uh, when, we, when we're talking about boosters and new COVID vaccinations, uh, how is, should that be happening? Should it be like, because I know for flu, uh, every year they give you a new vaccine and that has uh, what they expect to be the influenza A and B variants that are going to be circulating that year. Is that how it should work for COVID where a new variant, new vaccine? Um, because we've been seeing something different in terms of the boosters. Yeah. Um, so this is still, I think, an area of ongoing debate. In fact, um, just the um, advisory, um, one a federal 
advisory committee just recently met to um, discuss this very topic. And the, the question posed to them was, you know, should uh, should we pursue an annual booster? And annual, I mean, I'm um, I think the idea is well, um, we could benefit from from periodic boosting, and and on what scale should it be? Twice a year? Should it be one year? I think um, the favor towards one year was partially pragmatic in the sense that. Um, perhaps people would be more likely to do once a year versus showing up for twice a year. Um, so it's still an ongoing debate. I will say that the data are clearest in terms of the benefit for people who um, are higher risk for severe, severe illness. Um, so like I said, that's people, older folks and people who have underlying health conditions. Um, I think what's um, concerning is that we don't see great booster uptake in those populations, or at least what we'd like to see. So I'm particularly concerned that about half of nursing home residents um, have gotten uh, boosted um, and are, are up to date with their vaccinations. And um, if you've been paying attention for the last three years, you know, um, nursing homes are particularly vulnerable for COVID outbreaks and, and potentially deadly consequences from those COVID outbreaks. So making sure they get boosted is, is really important. So some of the debate of, you know, the frequency of boosting is partially one that's about operational feasibility and what people um, will will be likely to do in addition to, you know, can they benefit from it? Uh, and when it comes to those boosters, one of the things that I've noticed a lot of people uh, seem to have a problem with or or seem to or seems to have an effect on people's willingness to get boosters is, well, the term booster, because when we when we talk about, you know, vaccinations this is their flu vaccination. It's for the new flus that are coming out this year. Booster is it just seems like in its extension, it's not that important. It's just an extension of of the other vaccine of of our previous vaccination. It's not that important. One, why are they called boosters, and why are they still important? Yeah, I mean that's a really great observation, um, and it's interesting that that's how um, that you point that out. Um, so flu is different. Flu, um, it is a new vaccine each year, and we have in place an infrastructure that's you know scans the world um, for flu viruses, and then. Um, a decision is made every year as to, based on what's out there, what should the vaccine be made of? Um, and fortunately, flu um, falls into a very handy seasonal pattern such that um, what we in the Northern Hemisphere can do is look at the Southern Hemisphere um, and their flu season, which proceeds see what's circulating there, and then make a decision what our flu vaccine should be based on what's circulating there. So each year it is a new flu vaccine um, that you get. Um, Conversely, until recently, uh, the COVID boosters were the exact same vaccine, just um, a different um, uh, amount of strength. Um, the, now that's changed with the introduction of the bivalent um, booster. So now there are um, two uh, versions of the virus that are in the bivalent um, boosters, and that's different than the original um, vaccine. Going forward, um, it's likely that the primary series, that's people who haven't been vaccinated before, um, um, will likely get um, a more updated version um, that, that may be in the works. Uh, but um, so that's partially why it's been called a booster, which is that um, you've, it, um, until recently, we're kind of um, testing the immune system with something it's already seen before. Um, whereas with flu, it's new. Now, the question, your earlier question about how frequently should we get the vaccine um, or how we frequently should be boosted that, that once a year model, if they're proposing to make it like influenza, uh, the question is, will we update the vaccine every year? And if so, what's the infrastructure to gather the intelligence to tell us 
um, you know, what the vaccine should be made of. Um, you know, we have a global network of, of centers that are gathering those influenza data and reporting it to a central decision-making uh, mechanism. And we don't have that kind of infrastructure for COVID. And I'm, when we're talking about, you know, the infrastructure and the treatment plans that we have for COVID, uh, I know, obviously, we're trying to get uh, these new vaccines. But there's also been a lot of talk about uh, other based vaccines, like nasal based vaccines, and other treatments uh, like COVID pills. Um, where are we when it comes to COVID treatment? And where do we need to be? Yeah, so it's a mixed story. Um, first of all, we do have one treatment, um, Paxlovid, um, which is something that is particularly shown to benefit people who are high risk for severe illness um, that is underutilized, uh, meaning the people who could probably benefit it from benefit from it the most um, are not getting it nearly as much as they should be. Um, so that is a problem. And part of it is, is a knowledge problem. Some of it is and knowledge, not just for patients, but also um, clinical providers. Um, but some of it is also an infrastructure problem because um, it works best when it's taken early. So you have to basically get tested early in your course of illness, um, know that you have an infection, and then be able to access a prescription for it. So there's a bit of an operational challenge there that we've not yet solved. Um, but we still need more medicines. Um, and I think one of the, the places where we are really struggling right now is that we used to have a medicine that you could give to people before they even um, were exposed to the virus. Um, but for, for people who are immunocompromised or um, very high risk, that could potentially protect them um, from, from infection or to help them um, you know, before, before they even come in contact with the virus. That was a drug called Evosheld. Unfortunately, um, the, the virus has mutated such that that drug is no longer um, recommended um, anymore. And that's a real hole because people who are immunocompromised um, you know, now have um, fewer ways of protecting themselves from this virus. So that's a place where we absolutely need um, uh, to do more research um, and you know quickly. Um, and then nasal vaccines, which you mentioned, this is something that people are very interested in. And one of the reasons why they're interested in it is um, it may be that if you administer a vaccine via the nasal route, um, you know, spray, um, that it may stimulate a level of immunity in your mucosa. So that's the the um, the tissue inside of your nose that could perhaps help ward off infection better, faster than um, what currently happens now when you are vaccinated. Um, it may take a few days for your body to mount, an inf mount a response after it's been infected. Um, I will say, um, I think the pro prospect of mucosal vaccines are, is really exciting. Um, I think some people are overselling the surety that <laughs> in terms of the protection that they'll offer. Um, we have a of a nasal flu vaccine that hasn't um, fundamentally changed the game in terms of flu infections. It doesn't mean that a COVID mucosal vaccine won't, but anyway, it's just to say that there are still some open science questions there. But even if um, it's not better than the current COVID vaccines, um, it may be better functionally because um, who wouldn't rather get a mist in their nose than a shot? I know my kids would happily sign up for that vaccine. And let me tell you, um, having them, that an option for flu made our getting vaccinated as a family so much easier. So I think there are some real operational benefits to um, mucosal vaccines. And um, if you've talked to anti, or let me just say, if you've talked to people who are hesitant about getting vaccinated, um, if you spend enough time talking to them, 
very often you find out that one of the reasons why they're hesitant is that they're afraid of needles. Even adults are afraid of needles. And so giving people a needle-free option um, might be really important. And so like we have, we're trying to implement this nasal-based vaccine. Uh, we still need some more treatments in terms of treating COVID-19 before and after uh, in infection. Uh, but the main barrier you told me for that is, is infrastructure. Uh, is there any way that, or what do you think are the best ways to have this infrastructure, to have this infrastructure be uh, implemented? Um, because I know it really generally has to be a bit of a local thing as well in terms of hospital on hospital basis. Um, how do you think that's going to happen? So I actually think the main barrier at this point is funding. Um, you know, the White House has asked Congress for funding for um, next generation um, COVID vaccines, and Congress has been unwilling to provide those funds. Um, if you talk to the people who are researching this, they just say, listen, you know, we can do a lot of work. We just need the funding to do it. So I actually think that when it comes to making those breakthroughs, that's really what's limiting. Um, the good news is that's a solvable problem. That doesn't require bending the laws of physics. It doesn't require, you know, setting up huge multilateral organizations or anything like that. It's actually quite a fixable thing. Um, and um, and so it's it absolutely should be within our reach. Uh, we just need to, you know, kind of increase the pressure on the decision makers to make it. So um, call your Congress folks. Uh, I think it's really important. And one of the one of the main things that I've probably been I've probably heard I've been comparing a lot it, in this interview is COVID and influenza. Um, mm -hmm. Not only uh, because I've just published a paper about it. Everyone, in, everyone should go read my paper. Um, but the other thing I'd love to is, read it. Please send it to me. <laughs> I, I will. I will. Uh, and the other thing is that um, influenza has been really, really weird lately in terms of the trends that we've seen. During 2020, 2021, there was very limited influenza. And then uh, just very recently, it spiked up a bunch um, and had a really big impact and uh, on the healthcare system uh, and health providers. Uh, why is that happening? Well, we don't know for sure, but a very strong leading hypothesis is that um, we didn't have a lot of flu um, for the past several years, um, you know, people stayed home, people, we, we don't know exactly what stopped or slowed flu circulation um, during the pandemic. Um, there's a lot of hypotheses that all the things we did to protect ourselves against COVID may have worked against the flu. It's not the greatest explanation because um, we saw no flu even in countries that um, didn't shut down in the same way or have mask mandates or other things. My, my, my hypothesis, and this is just my hypothesis, I have no strong data, but that international travel may have played a role. And we know for several years, international travel was um, not what it usually is. And so that may have limited the introduction of, of the virus to different countries and just generally led to less seeding of infections. But regardless, we didn't have a lot of flu in um, 2021 um, in parts of 2020. Uh, so um, that meant um, that susceptibility to influenza virus built up. Uh, because if you think each year, sure, the flu virus changes, but um, some of it's still the same. It's not a complete departure from its previous version the year before. And as people get infected, they have reduced susceptibility to what, what would be noticeable infections um, in, in next years. And if, if you have a whole lot of people who aren't getting infected, um, you know, when the virus does find its way into a population, there's just less, there's many more paths to spread. 
um, because the population is much more vulnerable. So that's that's a leading hypothesis for why we suddenly saw um, some of the viruses coming back. And we saw this happen, the same thing happen in countries like New Zealand and Australia, which, you know, for a while didn't have COVID. And also, with the exception of international travel restrictions, were fairly open um, uh, during the pandemic. Um, so, um, so what we then saw was flu did last year come back and it it rose really quickly and then it um, fell fairly quickly. Um, and so that's that's kind of weird. <laughs> it's kind of weird for a flu season, but flu seasons have been weird. Um, even before the pandemic, we were starting to see flu seasons start earlier and end later. Um, I have a colleague here at Brown uh, who studies climate and respiratory infections, and there may be some, some connection there for why the the shape of flu seasons are, are changing, you know. Um, but anyway, um, that's that's certainly been weird. I will say that flu still probably has a whole lot more susceptibility in the population because while it rose really quickly and declined, um, not everybody got it and not everybody was vaccinated. So we could still be in for a hard one next year. Um, so uh, flu remains a, an urgent threat. And, you know, it's one of the reasons why I'm very happy to get vaccinated um, each year. And um, it's yet another reason why, yes, we're talking about COVID mostly, but really we should be talking about infectious diseases as the conditions of our times and how to protect ourselves against these hazards um, that that we live amongst, um, rather than viewing it through the lens of like a single pathogen that, you know, may on any given year not be the pathogen, um, but we should just be generally ready to deal with infectious diseases writ large. And so, you know, we've been sitting here and talking about uh, all these treatments and all these diseases. And, you know, a lot of the stuff we say, I feel like, hey, is like, hey, people, wait and see, uh, which is kind of science in general. It's kind of a wait and see kind of thing. Um, But let's say you're walking down the street, you come up to someone, they just left work, they're dropping the kid off at their basketball practice, Pilates at eight, still have to worry about dinner. um, And on top of that, they got influenza and COVID. And they're sitting there and they're wondering, hey, what should I do? What's the advice you give them for now and for the future? You know, I don't think the ideal is that we're worrying about this everyday life. I mean, you know, uh, the the scenario you described sort of sounds like the life of a busy mom, which is me. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think it's desirable that we as society are like, you know, fretting on every given day, you know, not enjoying our lives because we're worried about it. What I do think we should do is prioritize investments in the kinds of tools and infrastructure that can keep us safe from these infectious diseases. I mean, my goal for for dealing with these things is that uh, we've got protections running in the background and such that we don't have to think about them day in and day out. And I, I often use fire analogies here, um, which is that, you know, if you paid attention to history class and you read about history in the 20th century and the 19th century, um, you heard a lot about like great urban fires. These fires would happen and they would devastate cities and like wipe out blocks and blocks and blocks. Um, we don't have those anymore. Right. I mean, we don't hear about like the great Providence fire of 2020. Um, and thank goodness we don't. And the reason why we don't is we made all sorts of changes. We built fire departments. We standardized our fire hydrants. We made our buildings safer. Um, we have fire drills every year. We know what to do fire breaks out. We don't debate the existence of fire and whether we need to take protective action against it. It's just part of our culture of safety. Um, But it doesn't consume our day-to-day lives. I mean, we don't walk around thinking every day, like, is there a fire 
that's going to break out at any moment. And so I really think we have to strive to build a resilience in our communities against infectious diseases such that we can just live without thinking about them for the most part. Well, uh, if there's anything else you want to say, any advice you want to give to everyone, uh, this is kind of your time at the end of our interview. Um, so the most important thing right now is if you know someone, particularly someone who's older or have underlying health conditions, ask them if they've been boosted against COVID. And if they haven't, please offer to take them to get boosted. And similarly, if they get sick, please do encourage them to get tested and help them try to figure out how to get Paxlovid if they test positive. Um, assuming that may, you may have some younger podcast listeners here um, who may not be themselves over the age of 65, um, you know, if you have relatives that are, if they're anything like mine, they could use a little bit of help in those areas. So um, particularly when it comes to like navigating websites to figure out where to go to get things. Um, I think that's how we you know, defend against the worst effects of COVID is right now is we as individuals may be much safer um, than we used to be. There's still people among us who have, um, you know, more vulnerability and now it's just community efforts to help each other. Well, um, thank you, Dr. Nezzo for everything. Uh, and I really Thanks appreciate so much. it. Yeah. Great conversation. Thanks for including me. And thank you for listening. I'm Fazedi, and this was Infectious.